Welcome into Studio Du. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. <laughs> and I'm Cherry Gregg. Are you headed to the shore this Labor Day weekend for a final ocean swim this season? Well, the next time you sit on the beach looking out at the sea, think about this fact. 95% of our planet is deep ocean, stretching 36,000 feet down. And we know surprisingly little about it. That's what Susan Casey dives into in her new fascinating book, The Underworld. She even goes down to the ocean bottom in one of those tiny little submersibles. Not for me. Not for me either. Although it was fascinating to read about. For sure. And that's coming up a little later. You can send us your questions now, though, about the deep ocean and what's down there. Or you can call us. That number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Hey, you got any question about the deep ocean, Susan Casey has the answer. She knows it all. She's the person. Also, once in a blue moon, we talked to an astrophysicist about the upcoming blue moon. (laughs) And for our astrology fans out there, we also learn about Mercury in retrograde and whether or not the planet's track can be blamed for our small failures. I've been blaming it for years. So we're going to see. I think you're going to keep on blaming it, regardless of what we learned today. Also, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about Pennsylvania State Supreme Court race. Usually the sleepy runoffs, but not this year's. It's tracking to be one of the most expensive court race in the Commonwealth's history because of the abortion issue. Politico's Holly Otterbein We'll tell us all about that. But first, we're going to turn to some other news that piqued our interest. Yes. And have you received an offer for a credit card from your alma mater, Avi? Have you ever done that? I don't think I have, but I am thinking about whether I have because of this article you're about to tell us yeah, about. Yeah, well, I have. Mm-hmm. And apparently two dozen universities and alumni associations participate in marketing deals with credit card companies here in Pennsylvania. And it's extremely lucrative for mm-hmm. the universities and other groups. Pennsylvania actually ranks second in the nation for such deals. That is according to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau information. Federal data shows that after graduation, universities and alumni associations, they target students for affinity credit cards, and and it can yield millions of dollars. Some of these cards will bear the school's name and logo, and the bank will pay a percentage of each purchase made with that card to the institution. Now, sometimes the deals include banking products, ATMs, branches, all sorts of things. And I should mention that when I went to school, mm-hmm. early 2000s, I mean, this was part of the, you, you went to school, they were targeting us as students. Yeah. But um, the, the CARD Act enacted in 2009 prohibits financial institutions from marketing and issuing credit cards to individuals younger than age 21 without a cosigner. So there are some protections there. But I did not know this. And I have gotten, I, I have received the the offer. The solicitations. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we learned about this because of an excellent article mm-hmm. up right now at whyy.org by Kristen Mossberger Garza and Amanda Fitzpatrick detailing all of the agreements that various Pennsylvania colleges and universities mm-hmm. have with credit card companies. Should note that the number of people in Pennsylvania who have these credit cards Mm -hmm. has gone down precipitously since 2009 when those federal guidelines, Mm -hmm. guardrails were put in place. So uh, the latest statewide data shows just 7,000 accounts statewide for these alumni school-associated credit cards. But it does give you some pause, make you ask some questions about the roles of universities 
in basically brokering these exchanges between credit card companies and the next wave or generation of credit card holders. Yeah, and I should mention that the most lucrative contract statewide for these types of affinity credit cards was the Penn State Alumni Association, which had been under contract consistently between 2010 and 2020. But we'll see what happens because it used to be 163,000 people with these credit cards. And as you just mentioned, like 7,000. It's gone way, way, way down. Speaking of going down, approval ratings for offshore wind Mm. energy in New Jersey, according to a new Monmouth University poll. The number, the percentage of people in New Jersey who support offshore wind has gone from 76 percent in 2019 Mm. to 54 percent this month. That's also a precipitous drop. As we've talked about on this show, there are some projects moving forward off the coast of the Jersey Shore that will generate wind power with these big old windmills that will be placed in the ocean, it certainly seems. Although there is plenty of local opposition and always the potential that these projects get scuttled and the public, while still overall supportive, um, at 54 percent, not as supportive. As it once was. Yeah, and there's a lot of misinformation uh, going around related to the wind farms, in part because of the um, whales that showed up uh, that that showed right. up dead along the shore. But there, the studies show that there is no connection at this point. There's no evidence of a connection. But there, the misinformation was swirling when we had the show. We got lots of calls. We get tons of calls, and but, people were very like concerned. Lots yeah. of concerns. And I wonder how much of it is. That information and people's perception and how much of it is simply that the opponents of offshore wind have successfully made it a partisan issue. Exactly. Yes. And once anything in America becomes a partisan issue, you almost can't give above 54, 55 Mm percent for anything. Maybe you can get to 60. But uh, what this poll here shows is that support among Republicans has really, really dropped over the last four or five years. And that's really responsible for the overall drop. And um, that is because this has become much more of a wedge issue than it was in the past. Yeah. And by the way, um, you know, an environmental impact study is about to go forward. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what it it says and what happens. Another thing that's about to go forward is some new development on the parkway, Ben Franklin Parkway, right yeah. here in Philadelphia. The parkway will get some new tenants, and we here at WHRY will lose some neighbors. The Family Court building, that's the building right to, next to the main branch of the Free Library. It'll become a 200-plus room hotel with a restaurant and event space. It'll also house the African American Museum, which is our neighbor right here off of 6th Street, 7th Street. Um, and it'll also... Um, have expansions of the free library. Now, it won't actually come to fruition and be something we can use until 2028, but it's kind of cool because I think the African-American Museum here in Philadelphia, too small, needs more yeah. space, um, and it, it would be, it's just $50 million from the city is going to come into this project. It's a pretty big deal. It is a big deal. I'm also thinking about what's happening now to the space where the African-American History Museum once was um, because that space will become vacant. It is right next to the old police headquarters, the Roundhouse, which have been vacated. And so you got a big old plot of continuous, potentially open land. And we will see who wins the race to develop that because that's the next domino to fall. Because when someone moves... A space opens up behind it. And in a place like Center City, 
you know, that, that yeah. that's big money. That is big money. Speaking of big money, the state Supreme Court mm-hmm. race here mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. Now, typically, these races don't get a lot of attention. But this year, the contest between Republican Carolyn Carluccio and Democrat Dan McCaffrey is already heating up, and the abortion issue is at the center of it. Strategists predict that this is likely to be the most expensive Supreme Court race in Pennsylvania's history. Politico reporter and WHYY alum Holly Otterbein wrote a fascinating piece on all of this and joins us now to fill us in on what's going on. Holly, welcome to Studio 2. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. So Holly, this upcoming Pennsylvania Supreme Court race is getting a lot of attention. There's only one seat up this November and it will not change the balance of power. So why are so many people paying attention to this race? Because post-Dobbs, after, you know, Roe v. Wade was struck down, the national right to an abortion was struck down. Now people look at court races as races that are about abortion. Um, We saw this in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race earlier this year. And now Democrats are really trying to make the Pennsylvania Supreme Court race basically that 2.0. You know, they are they are already leaning into abortion. There's a pro-democratic super PAC that's gearing up that's going to try to make abortion really the centerpiece of the campaign. Planned Parenthood has already weighed in. They've got a digital ad going that's all about abortion. And the Democratic nominee, uh, Dan McCaffrey, he's a superior court judge. I talked to him. You know, he said that almost ad nauseum, that was his quote, um, what they're hearing about on the trail is all about abortion rights. So Democrats are really trying to make this all about abortion. They're they're going to put the money in to make sure that that's the case. Um, and Republicans, on the other hand, um, would rather this really not be about abortion at all. So clearly Democrats see that framing as a mm-hmm. winning framing. I guess the question is, Is it? I mean, is there really strong evidence to suggest that's the way forward for Democrats in a race like this? Or are they uh, maybe projecting a little bit? Well, we saw in the 2022 midterms that abortion was a major factor in why Democrats overperformed um, last year. And I think that Democrats look at it absolutely, like you said, as a winning playbook now. There was a question, I think, going into 2023 Um, about, you know, will abortion continue to be a really important issue in voters' minds? Will it continue to be as powerful as a motivator as it was last year? Um, Or, you know, as we get further away from the Dobbs decision, um, will that change? And so far this year, it doesn't look like it's changing. Um, You know, we saw the Wisconsin Supreme Court race where the liberal there made abortion, you know, front and center, They won by a huge margin. Um, We saw an Ohio special election um, earlier this year, just a few weeks ago, actually, um, and it it involved abortion rights. It wasn't directly on the ballot, but um, but it involved it. And 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 liberals there also made it, you know, a key piece of the campaign. And and, you know, they were successful again. And so um, so far, you know, it seems like this is continuing to be an issue. And Democrats, I think, would say, you know, that's because Republicans continue to pass abortion bans in red states across the country. And, you know, in the presidential race, um, the GOP candidates, you know, several of them are still continuing to push for abortion bans. So it's still very much a live issue. Mm. And and let's be clear, because in Pennsylvania, abortion is legal. 
Uh, and um, we have a Democratic governor. The Democrats have a slim majority in the House. Is abortion really the right to abortion uh, in any real threat here such that it can be the centerpiece of a race for the Supreme Court? Yeah, so Republicans argue this is not really on the ballot, you know, that for the reasons that you just laid out there, um, this is not an issue. The, you know, the, the governor is a Democrat, um, the state house narrowly controlled by Democrats. So there will be no, you know, abortion ban anytime soon, um, you know, coming out of the out of the state legislature and, you know, signed by the governor. Right. That's not going to happen anytime soon. What Democrats say is, um, you know, for one thing, Yes, they have a majority, um, you know, 4-2 majority on the court now, but that this race will set the stage for future races. And in 2025, three Democrats are up for retention. Um, so they want to, you know, pad their majority right now. And they also argue, you know, look, it was just last year that Republicans nominated a gubernatorial nominee, um, Doug Mastriano, who wanted an abortion ban with no exceptions. And so, you know, this is something that Republicans, you know, when they're in power, um, you know, often do want. Mm, mm. Um, so, you know, Republicans, though, are really trying to make the case that this is this is not actually right. on the ballot. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether that messaging is successful. About a minute left, Holly. But w- what is the scenario where the the makeup of the Supreme Court could actually play a role in whether or not abortion is legal or the, the state at which you have access, the number of weeks in which you have access. Because, you know, in, in many of the states where we're seeing restrictions, it's the Republican legislatures that are making those laws. Are there actual cases where a Republican-controlled state Supreme Court has changed the, the facts on the ground in a state? So I'm just trying to envision what the scenario is. Yeah, you'd have to talk to somebody who maybe has a little more expertise in um, covering state Supreme Courts across the country. Um, but again, I, I think that when Democrats are talking about this, they're kind of looking at several years out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they acknowledge that, um, yeah, Josh Shapiro certainly isn't going to sign um, an abortion ban. That's not going to happen. Um, but that, you know, if Republicans are in power and it's a, it's a battleground state, right, um, you know, every single election is a close one here. And if they if they take power again, then then this could be something that that um, that could be an issue. All right. Thank you so much. That was Holly Otterbein from Political Reporter and WHYY alum. Thank you so much, Holly, for being on Studio 2. Thanks for having me on. Up next, we're taking you down to the dark depths of the ocean. Susan Casey is standing by to tell us about the underworld on Studio 2. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Studio 2 plunging down. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. It's easy to look up and wonder about the mysteries of outer space. We've certainly spent a lot of time and money trying to explore it. But back on our own planet, Avi, there's a lot of Earth that still remains a mystery. The deep ocean. It makes up 95% of our biosphere, but we've barely explored it. The deepest parts 36,000 feet down. 
And that is where Susan Casey takes us in her new book. It's called The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. It's really about how little we know about the deep sea, our efforts to explore it, and the fragile ecosystem that it represents. Casey, by the way, has also written books on giant waves, great white sharks, and dolphins. Susan Casey, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you. And for Studio Two listeners who want to join the conversation, I know you've got questions about what's down there below the surface of the ocean. Give us a call, 888-477-9499, or email studio2 at org. Susan, fascinating book. And I want to start off by including a statement that you wrote. It says, it's apparent that nature runs as a massively interconnected system with the deep sea as its motherboard. I want you to lay out the argument about the deep sea being this motherboard of interconnectedness. Explain it to us. Well, as you mentioned, it's 95% of the biosphere. (laughs) And the ocean itself, uh, if you include the sunlight layer, the top 600 feet of the ocean is another 3%. So the ocean is not part of our planet. It is our planet. And in particular, the deep ocean uh, is massively dominant. It's the engine that runs the climate system. It distributes heat around the planet. It buffers our excess carbon. It uh, it is it distributes nutrients. It recycles nutrients. It, the, it it's basically the whole ball game, and uh, we know that the sun creates a, is an energy source that you know fosters life from above. But there's also another energy source that comes up from below, and that's thermal energy and all kinds of minerals and all kinds of microbial life that emits from the interior of the planet. So the deep ocean doesn't even stop at the seafloor. There's life as deep as a mile beneath the seafloor. So it is impossible to consider anything that happens on Earth without this incredible aquatic realm that we most of the time kind of ignore. And yet, as you write in the book, we lavish billions on the prospect of colonizing Mars a barren dust ball, as you describe it. And yet, you know, there's relatively little attention paid to what's going on in the deep sea. So, yes, perhaps we understand that it, that it's critical, but it seems like we don't really quite understand how or to what extent. So what is the argument for further exploration, for pouring our time and our resources into diving down there? Well, I think the argument is we need to know how everything works as an, as I said, as a massively interconnected system in order to be able to withstand the rapid changes that are coming our way. They're happening now. And as regimes change and the ocean warms and things, you know, become different than what we've expected uh, in the past, we will need to know how to anticipate the tipping points that might happen, say, if the ocean, the pH of the ocean changes, the temperature, it will change the life that lives there. And that has reverberations to to every part of our lives. Um, so I think it would really behoove us to find out about this before we expand to other planets. Um, and when you do dive into the deep ocean, what you realize immediately is it's, you know, it's immensity. It's pretty hard for us to even wrap our imaginations around how big it is but also you see that it's it's not like space because it's just intensely alive it's a matrix of life from large to small uh and you know so there's this thriving life-filled place that 
really is running the show. And we do have the ability to explore it in person. We also have incredibly powerful and advanced robots and other autonomous technologies. And there is a, a push among scientists to explore it and to understand it better at the moment, because it's also, of course, under threat, like every other ecosystem. As you mentioned there, it's the opposite of a barren dust ball down there. Mm -hmm. But at one point, because you do a lot of great history deep diving in this book, at one point, the prevailing wisdom was that there was just nothing living down there. Explain to us how scientists came to that false conclusion and how they figured out, wait a second, this thing is teeming with life. Yeah, so so what you're talking about was called the Azoic theory, which basically means without life. And it was... espoused by the leading scientists of the day, which was in the mid-19th century and slightly before that. And it made a lot of sense if you project ourselves into the deep ocean, we couldn't live there. Mm. So the immense pressures, the lack of light, what they thought was a lack of habitable living space, because of course they didn't know that there are all kinds of creatures that have adapted to live under these extreme pressures and their lives entirely in darkness, we couldn't do that. So of course, nothing could live there. And it was also thought that maybe it was so cold at the bottom, the seafloor was sealed by ice, or maybe the water was so dense at the bottom that nothing could even swim around through it, nothing could sink all the way down. So there were all kinds of theories like that. And they were finally disproven not that long ago, it was around 1873 to 1876, the first sort of international deep sea expedition went out. It was called the Challenger Expedition and caught animals from the very depths of the seafloor and proved that there is life throughout the entire water column, thriving, very unusual and highly adapted life that we actually have a lot to learn from in terms of resilience and strategies for survival in extreme conditions. And after that, it was just a matter of learning more and more about what lives down there. And if you are just tuning in, we're talking about the deep ocean. We're speaking with Susan Casey, author of the new book, The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. If you want to join in the conversation, if you have questions for Susan about what's under there, what's down there, call us 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy. And Susan, you touched on this. I mean, we've in your book, you talk about how for every one dollar that we that the federal government has um, put on deep sea exploration, they've done over one hundred dollars for space exploration. Um, How do you and you said now there is this starting to be a push to go under the sea? What has sort of changed the tide in your mind? Well, there's a lot of private money funding deep sea exploration and some uh, groups that are funded by extremely wealthy individuals like Eric Schmidt from Google and his wife, Wendy Schmidt, have an oceanographic institution that basically funds all kinds of scientists. Uh, They have a really capable, very advanced deep sea robot that they work with in their own ship. And there is also a group called Ocean X, which is sort of under the auspices of Ray Dalio, the um, hedge fund billionaire who just loves the ocean. And there are maybe another half dozen groups like that. And they're really doing extensive work and funding a lot of science. So I think along with the the government uh, funding for exploration and research, there's a lot of private funding now. 
And quick follow-up to you, what is the upside and downside right. of it being privately funded versus, you know, publicly funded where we can all have access to uh, whatever findings come out of that exploration? Well, all of the findings are publicly available. I don't, most scientists will not work under any conditions where their work is somehow embargoed like that. So this public funding is really altruistic. It, mm. it, it, it the, I'm sorry, the private funding is really altruistic. So all of it is good in my book. Um, and there isn't a sense of the private funding, you know, hoarding research or anything like that. That just doesn't happen. Interesting. Any threat moving forward with that? I mean, I guess it only takes one megalomaniac to break the trend. Or do you feel confident that this is a sustainable and ultimately open source way of, of, you know, exploring the deep ocean? I mean, I would love for governments to increase their funding, uh, particularly the U.S. government. That would be great. But I don't have uh, I, I don't like just knowing how much there is still to learn. Mm. I'm happy when anybody funds any kind of research in the deep ocean uh, and in the ocean as a whole. Interesting. One of the things you, you've gone down um, pretty deep in the ocean um, and you've gone in one of these submersibles. Um, can you describe what a submersible is? And then how was it being inside of one of those things? Because my imagination is sort mm. of running wild. I see like a tight, something very claustrophobic almost. <laughs> I do think that anybody who is claustrophobic might not enjoy going down in a deep sea submersible, <laughs> but everybody else would probably find it life altering in a really mm. great way as I did. So, so submersibles are different than submarines, although confusingly, the terms are sometimes used interchangeably. But a submarine, everybody knows what a submarine is. Those are relatively shallow military submarines. They're shaped like a sil cylinder because that's a better space for people to live in. And they're completely self-sustaining. They have their own uh, power sources that can keep them down there for weeks and even months at a time. But they go like a maximum of a few hundred feet, which is not, in fact, the deep ocean. So a deep sea submersible, will can. there are two submersibles in the world now, one of which I dived in, that can take a, a pilot and passenger uh, to the full depth of the ocean, which is almost 36,000 feet. Um, that's only the case since 2019. One is owned by a private individual. That's the one I d dived in. And the other one is owned by the Chinese government. So it's a really big engineering uh, feat to get a machine that can do that and do it safely and repeatedly. Um, but there, there are also submersibles that go to 1,000 meters. There are submersibles that go to 4,000, 6,000 meters. That said, not that many relatively speaking and they all have uh, a certain set of really rigorous safety parameters around them they're all examined by outside associations that make sure that from their very inception to their the the life their diving life that they are uh, inspected and inspected and tested so they're very safe vehicles but um, another common thing is that the sphere is a really important shape in deep sea exploration because at, at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, say, which is the deepest part of the ocean, you'll encounter 16,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. So that's like, mm. to give you a sense of how much that is, that's approximately 292 fully fueled and loaded 777 jumbo jets stacked on your head. Oh, so the sphere, what's important about wow. it is you sit inside this and, it, you know, you're completely it's a life support system. You're not encountering any sort of pressure at all, because if you did, you'd be liquid. Um, 
it, it is the only shape that distributes all this immense pressure symmetrically, so there's no particular weak spot. And when the sphere is strong enough and you crush it in this sort of um, symmetrical way, it just becomes stronger, the shape, and it is the only shape that does that. So uh, you sit in a very tight space. The one that I uh, dived in has three and a half inch thick titanium walls with three viewports that are made of um, acrylic that is also cut from a spherical shape. So it's like a foot thick, but it's shaped like a cone kind of. And so when the pressure pushes onto the viewports, it just seals it more tightly, which makes it virtually impossible to shatter or leak. Um, so you're really not seeing anything except out of these, they're, they're really crystal and clear, but they're small viewports. But then there are these other deep sea submersibles that, um, go to a thousand meters or even 2000 meters and they have a completely acrylic plexiglass sphere that you can sit in which is really astonishing and i dived in one of those as well and you just see the ocean like a psychedelic mm, aquarium wow. it's like you're floating in a bubble uh, and these submersibles have their own motherships they have their own launch systems their own dedicated crew and technicians and they need that mothership to transport them to the area they need it to launch and recover them and their power systems are batteries so they can't stay down um, and operational for the the anywhere near the type of duration that, say, a, a, su a military submarine can. So they're very versatile in terms of being able to fly around the bottom, but they need this launch and recovery support wow. system. Um, you're getting a sense there with that answer of <laughs> yes. why this book kept me up at night. Yes. <laughs> I'm a little groggy today because there are some there are some squirrely moments in some of these dives. Um, it's not for the faint of heart, but as you mentioned, it, it is so beautiful. I actually wanted to read a passage from the book because you write so forcefully about the experience of being down there. You wrote, above the surface, life can feel like it's spinning apart, fracturing into pixels, dispersing like dust by the day. But here was solidity and eternity and a reality bigger than anything we could imagine. Speaking of imagination, Susan Casey, we have a question here from Margaret in Paoli. I have heard about a doomsday fish being spotted in the sea. Can you talk about that fish and what it means? Um... So doomsday fish, what's going on with that? And maybe some of the other creepy crawly creatures you find down there. I mean, I think what uh, the listener is referring to is, and, and I'm, this is a deep sea fish that ended up near the shallows. And I believe it's um, it's not the oarfish, but it's very close to the oarfish. And the oarfish is a really long, skinny fish, like it can be 30 feet long. And it looks really unusual, but it's, uh, it's very enigmatic it floats vertically in the ocean they hardly ever see them except when something goes wrong with them and they end up at the surface and if if i'm interpreting this correctly i think because it's such a sort of serpentine fish and so unusual as many deep sea fish are to us um that it's seen as some sort of an uh sort of auspicious in a certain way but mm. also i've heard that it can mean that uh that bad things are coming, but I think that's entirely human superstition. I mean, <laughs> so many of the deep sea animals, people often ask me like, what's the creepiest thing you've seen? What's the scariest thing you've seen? I find these creatures really like beautiful in their own unique way. And in some cases, everybody's seen the pictures of the fish with the giant teeth and the giant mm -hmm. eyes that are in the deep 
ocean, they're, they're usually really small. And so I actually find them sort of adorable. Um, <laughs> they are, they look that way because of where they live and how they survive. And it's just, uh, the deep ocean is like nature showing off its creativity in terms of just all the creatures that we don't see in the upper world. Um, and I often say to people, if you see marine life and you know its name, it probably comes from the sunlight layer, the top 600 right. feet of the ocean, because there are, in fact, the, the most abundant vertebrate on Earth is a little fish called the elongated bristlemouth. And when I talk about my book and I show pictures, I will ask the audience, okay, how many people have heard of an elongated bristlemouth? And unless they're a scientist, nobody has. But they are, as lying. I said. Wow, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know that they're lying. They look like barracudas in minnow form, you know, yeah. and for every human on earth, it's estimated that there are a hundred thousand bristle mouths. So they're a really significant uh, player in the deep ocean, but we are com almost completely unaware of them. Wow. And if you just tuned in, we're talking about the deep ocean with Susan Casey, author of the underworld journeys to the depths of the ocean. If you want to join the conversation, call us now 888 Four seven seven nine four nine nine. You can also email studio two at whyy.org. Susan, your enthusiasm is very infectious. I have to say that. What got you fascinated and enthralled with the deep ocean such that, you know, you would want to get inside one of these submersibles and go deep down to the very bottom? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I've always really been drawn to bodies of water. I grew up in in uh, southern Ontario around Toronto. Uh, so I wasn't exposed to the ocean as a very young child, but we had all these lakes and they had this really sort of dark water. And I would always think when you go through the surface, you're entering this sort of parallel universe. And I really wanted to see what was down there. And I always wonder, I couldn't really look at any body of water and not wonder what's happening. Like it's so, there's a party going on down there that we don't get to see. And when I began to spend more and more time in the ocean and I wrote my first book, which was about uh, the great white sharks that are resident at the Farallon Islands off the coast of San Francisco, just off the coast, uh, that water is really sort of brooding and dark. It's the Pacific, but you know, on any given day, I would be with these scientists in their little tiny re research boat and something would pop up that was really extraordinary, like a 20 foot long great white shark or one day there were 40 blue whales that were just breaching the surface, lunge feeding, or a mako shark, or these really unusual gelatinous creatures uh, co called comb jellies or tenophores and siphonophores that I wasn't even aware of. Wow. And uh, I just, you know, it really, the question, what's down there? It was one that haunted me every time I would have some kind of exposure to any body of water, but especially the ocean, and really especially the Pacific Ocean. I want to bring in a caller who I think shares some of your enthusiasm, <laughs> yeah. Susan Casey, author of The Underworld. Uh, our caller is Scott, who wants to talk about creatures living on the ocean floor. Scott, what is your question or comment for Susan? You're on Studio 2. Thanks for taking my call, Susan. Um, quick question. You mentioned there's life like a mile beneath the ocean floor. I'm just curious to understand a bit more about that, what types of creatures are down there and uh, what might make them unique. Thank you. Yes, yes. So that that life that's within the pores and fissures and cracks of the ocean crust, and there's seawater circulating in there as well, is microbial and microorganisms. And some of them are, they, Japanese scientists recently found a microbe down there uh, that is, uh, they think it's 100 million years old, and it's sort oh. of in this 
I, I this is my maybe not the right term for it, but it's kind of like in this dormant state. It's not alive. It's not dead. Just kind of there because it is. Um, they call it the deep biosphere, and it's really brand new. This is really the frontier of science. Um, we, by the way, don't know that it stops at a mile down. That's just how far we've managed to find it so far. Um, there, at a certain point, it's thought that the temperatures would be too high for any cell to survive, but there is a thriving ecosystem uh, not visible to us, um, mm. you know, microbial, so... Uh, but lots and lots of unique microorganisms. And just to give a sense of how many there are that we don't know in the microbial world, scientists did a study where they took 418 sediment samples from the deep seafloor, and they put it through genomic sequencing, which is something that's really used heavily in science these days to find out about a, a creature, an organism, and discovered two million, sorry, two billion DNA sequences wow. with more than a hundred thousand DNA variants. And when they started to uh, sort through those, they discovered that six, more than sixty percent, I think sixty-one percent, of these DNA variants were not only new species; they were like new branches on the tree of life. So the deep sea floor sediments and below are really represent uh, sort of nature's yeah. DNA archive. It's it's arc of genomic creativity. So we're just beginning to understand this. It may have all kinds of repercussions in terms of. Um, microbial uh, strategies and, for survival against viruses and all kinds of other things, and, medicines I, of the future. And I got to ask, jump in here, because uh, there is this obsession with the, the ocean floor now where people are doing mining, deep sea mining. And a lot of this is related to our desire to expand a uh, use of electric cars. Can you talk about any of the threats to this? And I wanted to throw that in there because um, we're hearing more and more about that, and we only have a couple more minutes. Yeah. So this is by far the greatest threat that the ocean uh, is facing right now, and it has not started yet on an industrial scale, but it's it's imminent, and there are many interests that would like to see it happen. Um, most of it would start right, right, like if it starts within the next couple of years, it would be beneath on the seafloor beneath the high seas, the waters beyond national jurisdiction. And there are these metallic nodules that basically grow uh, on the seafloor and they kind of grow like pearls. It takes tens of millions of years for them to grow, but they're not just lumps of metal because they have creatures, microbes and other organisms living inside them, under them, on top of them. And so they're more like trees uh, in a forest or corals on a reef. And the mining would be across huge swaths of the seafloor, like the average mine site would be 30,000 square miles. And scientists are really freaked out by this, and as am I after researching it, and uh, it would be the most destructive thing that humans have ever done on Earth by an order mm. of magnitude. Yeah. It would be the largest extractive industry we've ever pursued. And um, the idea of doing this for so we can have more car batteries is pretty insane because this is our greatest buffer against global warming is the ocean. And we don't understand how it ex does that. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to tear up an ecosystem that we ha we don't even know very much about yet. Um, and I dearly hope it doesn't happen and love every opportunity to make people more aware of it. Yeah, and this book really lays it out in stark terms. There's a whole chapter about the potential of mining the seafloor and what it could do to ecosystems. I would love to talk more about it with you, Susan Casey, but we do have to end the conversation there. So appreciate you being on Studio 2. My pleasure. Thank you. Susan Casey's new book is The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths 
of the ocean. Coming up, we're yeah. going into the sky. All Mercury right. is in retrograde. I don't know what it means. We're <laughs> we gonna find figure out. It out. <laughs> if I could fly like birds on This is Studio Two. I'm an Aries. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm a Capricorn named Cherry Gregg. <laughs> Avi, you may have heard about this thing in astrology. Uh, it's called Mercury is in retrograde. You heard about it? I have now. Well, now you, well, last Wednesday, people swear that the smallest planet in our solar system, which is actually also the closest to the sun, they swear it is affecting their mood. The current retrograde ends on September 14th, and specifically my Virgo friends, they tell me that they feel it during this time. They feel it. Feeling it. Okay. Um, so this planet that we're talking about is 59.5 <laughs> million miles away, so it will be interesting to mm -hmm. see how a Virgo or Taurus could, could blame their feelings or their bad moves on the position of this planet. Little baby planet. Well, to answer this question, that's why we bring in experts. On yes, because I'm Bobby. not. I'm not. And we're bringing in Sabrina Steerwalt, an astrophysicist at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California. And she studies our cosmic region. Sabrina, welcome to Studio Two. Having me. All right, Sabrina, Mercury is indeed in retrograde, which is not like a made-up thing. It really is in retrograde. So from an astron astronomical you know, point of view, what does that actually mean? Uh, great question. So yeah, you're right. It is, a, it is not made up. It is an actual physical t period of time for our little planetary neighbor. And what it means, though, is that retrograde motion is all about perspective. So the planet appears to be moving backwards in the sky, but it's not really moving backwards. It's just chugging along in its orbit. Uh, but because Earth and Mercury move at different speeds, sometimes it overtakes us. And so there will be certain times where when we look at it, it looks like it's behind us. So it looks like it's moving backwards. Mm. And sometimes it looks like it's it's just going about its business moving forward. You can test this out if you say have your friend start walking really slowly and you start behind them and you walk fast uh you'll see that if you keep looking at your friend at some places they look like they're going forward and some it, if you keep going a little bit they'll look like they're moving backwards interesting and so this phenomenon has sparked so many beliefs about what mercury and retrograde does to the human body i do believe on full disclosure in astrology a little bit okay you know, i'm one of those people okay okay so okay. let's set the record straight please tell me does mercury does mercury being in retrograde negatively impact us what does the science say so the science says that we don't see a mechanism for that to happen. So as a scientist, I always look for evidence. I I keep an open mind, mm -hmm. but I am driven by the evidence. And first you need evidence that it's actually affecting our lives. And I know there are people who would attest very strongly that it is affecting our lives and making things challenging for us when Mercury is in retrograde. But beyond that, we haven't done large controlled studies that show that that's actually the case. And more significant for me is that we don't know what the mechanism would be, mm -hmm. right? Why would this period of time when the planet appears to be moving backward be changing something here on Earth 
what would be the transfer of that information? We just don't we just don't see it. There's no conceivable physical mechanism, no electromagnetic fields that are out of alignment or in alignment. Like there's nothing that people could even dream up, even if they haven't proven it. That's right. And mm. it's it's because the retrograde motion is just about perspective. It, Mercury isn't changing its uh, its speed or or its direction um, in actuality. So me, my cart getting stuck, you know, at the grocery <laughs> store over the weekend. I can't blame Mercury and retrograde. So where did this belief blame come the supermarket. from? <laughs> blame the supermarket. They're the ones that messed up it the cart. It got stuck, Avi. So um, who, I mean, where did this idea come from in astrology? People just started blaming, you know, just Mercury just randomly? Well, so other planets go into retrograde, uh, but... Mercury, it happens three, four times a year for Mercury. It happens more frequently. And so we hear about it a lot more. And so I think maybe that's why we're we're drawn to this little guy. <laughs> and I just think the appeal of the cosmos controlling our fate is pretty mm. clear, right? It takes some of the pressure off of us. It tells us this time will pass. Once Mercury is out of retrograde, things are going to start working. My cart isn't going to trip me up anymore. Uh, and I, I I get that. I just don't want us to start thinking that we can't change the future, that we don't have the power to change the future, um, because we do. We're here to make improvements in the world, and, and we can do that. Putting aside Mercury for a second, uh, the position of the stars, the position of the planets, the position of our moon... Um, do do those things have an impact on our physical being at all or, or our planet's health at all? I mean, there are there some linkages out there putting aside whatever astrology um, purports? Uh, sure. Well, the moon controls our tides, mm -hmm. right? When the moon, um, the motions the of the moon in its orbit uh, is what the slightly diff slight difference in the gravitational tug controls our tides. So that's pretty powerful. That's pretty important for us. Uh, so we do see the gravitational interaction between us and, and our pal, the moon, making big changes here on Earth. And so speaking of moons, tonight around 9.37 p.m. Yeah. Eastern time, we'll get a major treat, a super blue moon something that rarely happens. Uh, what is a super blue moon and um, c how will it impact us? Will, because you mentioned the moon, the moon does have some impact. Uh, well, I just think the moon is so beautiful. And so I'm very excited for the super blue moon. Unfortunately, blue doesn't mean it will look blue in color. Mm -hmm. We just call something a blue moon when there are two full moons in a single month. So we had a, the cycle is around 28 days. And so we had a full moon on August 1st and we get another one uh, uh, today on August 30th. And so that's what the blue moon, that's the blue part. And then a super moon means that the moon is a full moon while it is closest to us in its orbit. So the moon orbits the earth in an ellipse. So like a slightly squashed circle, not a perfect circle. And so that means at some points it's going to be closer to us. And at some points it's going to be farther away from us. And so when those two things link up, it's a full moon and it's in that closest spot, we get this big, bright, beautiful, what we call a super moon. And it, it looks something like 14% 
larger in the sky than the average moon. So that's like if you're looking at a nickel versus a quarter. Wow. And I understand it won't happen again until 2037. Uh, that's right. Wow. Wow. Catch it while you can, folks. <laughs> We're so glad that we caught you. <laughs> so glad we caught you, Sabrina. Uh, that is Sabrina Steerwalt, astrophysicist at Occidental College. Sabrina, thanks for coming on Studio Two. Thank you so much for having me. Interesting conversation, Cherry. So are you moved at all? Um, Not really. Uh, I will say my Capricorn horoscope said today that the full moon is in Pisces, lighting up my house of communication and mm-hmm. that the universe was sending me a message. I don't know if this is lighting up your house of communication. We're yes. communicating. You're communicating to thousands of people right now. That seems pretty accurate. Yeah, it does. It does. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Horoscopes. And I got to shout out my Auntie Frances, who's been our family astrologer and numerologist for years. Well, but you know, I, 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 there's millions of people yeah. in America and beyond that totally. believe in this. And I think you have to find a way to talk about all these things, to talk about what the science you know, has proven and not proven in a way that doesn't come across as arrogant. And I thought Sabrina did that really well, because I do think then you just you caught you, you like divide people over this stuff. And it's not worth dividing over. We all we all have beliefs, whether yes. it's astrology or anything else. We and I, and I believe it a little bit, a little know, bit, a little bit. I don't like live my life based on it's, it, but it adds a little, you know, spice. Could you put a percentage on it? 10 percent, 15 percent, 15. Here's a percentage, 100 percent. You should go rate and review (laughs) the Studio 2 podcast. I'm going to tell you why. Because those reviews and those ratings really help us reach more people on the podcast side. Mm -hmm. And we really would appreciate reaching more people. We reach a lot of you here on 90.9 FM. But we want to get out into the podcast universe, the great beyond there. So uh, if you wouldn't mind going over to Apple, uh, rating and reviewing, we really do appreciate it. Our producers. Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, Andreas Copes, Tina Calake engineered today's show. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg in Studio 2 in Philadelphia. Thanks so much for being with us, friends. Adios.